0: Welcome to the Joseph Wells Podcast, where the guests are unique, but the goal is the same, improving our lives by standing on the shoulders of giants. My guest today is Cole Schaefer. Cole is a master copywriter, poet, author, and ad man. He is best known for his newsletter, Sticky Notes, where he sends weekly emails about advertising, writing, creativity, and life. Cole has an exceptional ability to tell stories that pull you in, and slap you in the face with a life lesson. He's also known for his 10,000 word copywriting and marketing guide, which is guaranteed to help you sell your used couch on Craigslist. More on that later. In this episode, Cole told me the story of his Uber driver who was a hitman. We discussed the importance of being a good speaker. Cole shared his journey from being the guy who rips out carpets to the guy who writes ads for Boflex. We also talked about how to become a better writer and a more effective human. Like I mentioned earlier, Cole is a great storyteller, and I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. Before we get to the show, I have one quick ask. If you enjoy this episode, please sign up for my email list. Jump over to josephcwells.com to sign up, and you'll receive one email from me every Friday with the best curated content to help you live a more balanced, effective, and happy life. All right, that's enough from me. Now, fasten your earbuds, grab your notebooks, and enjoy my conversation with Cole Schaefer. Cole, welcome to the show. Joe, I am uh, stoked to be here, man. Yeah, I'm stoked to have you here. I've been following your writing for a bit now, and I've had the pleasure of listening to you on a few other podcasts and had to have a conversation, man.
1: Yeah, man. Yeah, I've, uh, I've just started uh, getting into the Podcast game seriously. And, uh, you know, one thing I've really been working on lately is just getting better at interviewing because so much of my life is spent writing. You know, I haven't really been able to flex that muscle of being a, a good interview. So I've been working with a coach. Uh, even his name is Joe Fer- Ferrero, and he's he's awesome. Uh, but, but yeah, I'm just slowly kind of polishing up my skills.
0: Yeah, Joe's a great guy. I like, I like him a lot. We've done. little a little bit together he's been on the podcast so yeah how do you find that writing translates to speaking and having these conversations
1: so the uh the positive of it is that the positive aspect of writing uh where it can like relate to pod podcasts or doing interviews is that you always have this well of stories that you can pull from Mm. you know if you go to my my blog I just have countless stories that I've found interesting that I've read about that I've experienced in, and, and that has been a huge benefit going into podcasting where someone might ask me a question and I'm able to pull, pull a story to, to, to relate a point or whatever. Um, the negative is that with writing, you can edit your thoughts, right? Mm, uh, whereas yeah. with speaking, you know, something that's been difficult and, 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 and kind of heady, but like, I'll. I'll be in the midst of an interview and I'll say something stupid. And, and I, and I'm thinking, you know, fuck, I wish I could edit that out. <laughs> or I wish I could, <laughs> I wish I could change the language. And obviously there's podcasts that do a ton of editing, but uh, you know, as the person being interviewed, you don't always have that control.
0: <laughs> right. Right. So what made you decide like, oh, Hey, I need to go work with a coach now
1: awareness, I would say there, there was a a certain amount of awareness that came with it where, you know, I, I, I think it's important to be very aware of your strengths. And I think Mm. it's also important to be very aware of your weaknesses. And I found for a year as I was slowly becoming more prominent in the world of writing, I was getting these interviews and these asks to do workshops. And I was noticing myself kind of hiding, you know, leaning away. And, uh, at first I always shrugged it off as, you know, I, I'm, I'm above getting interviewed or like, I'm, I'm cool with being more of a recluse or I need to focus on my work. But when I really looked myself in the mirror, I was like, no, you're just scared as shit to, to get on these interviews. And that was when I sort of got in contact with Joe and, and we've been working together ever since, but it, it was just me realizing I was scared. And I think I think on a broader note, you know, I I think when we're scared of something, it's it's really our inner compass uh, that's generally like the thing we're scared of is the thing we most have to do. So I think we kind of can use fear as this this sort of compass to to point us in the 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 direction we really need to go. You know, with our lives.
0: That's a cool way to look at it. I, I like I like that idea. Did you have any experiences where you were on a podcast or you were being interviewed and you just totally fucked it up?
1: Yes. Yes, I I definitely
0: have had those experiences. I'm trying to think of
1: of one specific one. Man, I would I wouldn't say I've had any just straight out bombs, but I've had moments of podcasts that mm. have been bombs. You know, I was on uh the Kent Lap podcast, which is a local podcaster here in Nashville, Tennessee. He's a he's a great dude. Um, but for each of his guests he gives them a shot of whiskey <laughs> and so he gave me some buffalo Trace and uh, he poured me a, a a drink and it definitely was more than a shot so I took that and I was doing good and then he poured me another and I was doing good then he poured me another and I was about an hour and a half into a two-hour podcast and I think it was a pretty solid podcast because I was feeling really loose yeah but I, I did, I just said the stupidest metaphor and it was uh, me trying, like, I, I don't even know how I got there, but I just started talking about like a bucket full of seafood with crabs and fish and like tried to use that as a metaphor into like people choosing uh, what, what they want and what they don't want out of life. And after I said it, I immediately cringed and I was like, why, are you a fisherman now? Like, why are you, why are you even <laughs> using that metaphor? It, it was terrible, man. Just terrible.
0: Well, it's good to have those moments so you know, you know, you can look back and say, okay, I'm not not doing that anymore. I've I've definitely made some improvement here.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I I kind of call them fever dreams, right? Where I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but you'll just be chilling or driving, driving through traffic or maybe even like sitting in a hot yoga class or lifting weights. And then all of a sudden, for whatever reason, you have this flashback to 10 years ago where you said something really stupid to a girl or mm-hmm. uh, tripped over your feet or did something really embarrassing. And you just almost break out into, into a hot sweat. Yep. Uh, that's what those podcast moments are is, you know, I'll listen back through them and you have these cringe moments and they're a kind of a painful reminder to stay on your feet, you know, and and make sure you're 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 going into them with the the right kind of energy and mentality.
0: So what does a coaching session look like with Joe?
1: So Joe and I become really close friends, uh and he'll actually kill me since I butchered his last name. I think it's Ferraro, not Ferrero. Um, <laughs> I'll have to clarify that with him at some point, but, but uh so we become really close friends. So generally the first 10 minutes is us just shooting the shit, you know, mm. catching up. Um, and I think that's really his way of just getting me comfortable, you know, and, and, and then from there we will do a, about a 20 minute session where we're breaking down the previous podcast that I was mm. on. Uh, so he always listens to all of my podcasts and we have a pretty transparent relationship. So if he thinks I said something stupid or I portrayed myself in a way that he felt wasn't necessarily true to who I am. You know, he'll, he'll, he'll be upfront and tell me that. And then we'll actually do a 20 minute mock interview where it's just a speedy sort of 20 minute interview. And he tries to, I almost would use a sports metaphor of like hitting me, hitting me ground balls, you know, and mm, I'm just, yeah. uh, and he, he's trying to throw questions at me that I've never had before. So just keeping me on my toes. And, and then we close out with the last 10 minutes of sort of, preparing
0: for that, for the next interview that I have, that I have up. What would you say is the biggest improvement that you've noticed from working with them?
1: Rambling. um, And I'm going to sort of put an asterisk here because I feel like I've been rambling a little bit at at points in this podcast, uh, but I was really bad about rambling when we first started working together. Uh, And you, you probably even noticed this with your guests, but you might ask them, what did you have for lunch today? And before they just give you the answer, a ham sandwich, there's a 20 to 30 second period where they're kind of, hmm, uh, yeah. And I, it reminds me of something and it, they don't actually get to the answer for mm. 30 seconds. And the, the listeners are just kind of scratching their heads like, just tell us you had a fucking ham sandwich. <laughs> you know, don't, don't tell me uh, how you got to the deli, right? He, he's really worked with me on, if you ask me a question, trying to deliver the answer quick, like in a one word sort of uh, answer. And then if I want to elaborate on it and expand. Um, So yeah, yeah. He's just really helped me not be too long winded. Um, It's still something I'm working on though.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's not easy. So I I work for a, a company where our clients are podcasters and we take their content and break it down into clips. And then we edit those clips to really polish them. And we edit out so many filler words, so many false starts, so many ramblings. And the guests that are on these shows are you know, polished, intelligent people. So it's not just something that comes naturally really to anyone. I think it has to be practiced over and over and over again. Is there a specific type of person that you would recommend like this coaching for?
1: Let's say you want to be someone that's doing a podcast interview a month. You know, yeah, I yeah. think, uh, I think Joe's really, really fucking talented at being a coach. He coached baseball for a long time. Um, so with that, you know, he's, he's not cheap. So I think you want to be doing one podcast a month. I think you want to be in a position where you're really trying to level up your career. And and that was a, a big mind shift I had to have where I got to this place in my career where I seriously could see on the horizon, getting to this getting to this moment where people are going to ask me to, to, to speak in person, you know, once Mm. COVID was, was gone. And I felt like, wow, this was the perfect opportunity where the world's sort of shut down and, and, and maybe I can work on really honing this craft of being a better speaker. Uh, so that's, that's why I ended up working with him, but yeah, I would say you, you definitely need to have, you need to be ready, right? Because like anything, the coaching is only as good as how much time and effort you're willing to put into it. Of course.
0: Yeah. I like that idea that you talk about of it's COVID right now and I can't be out there speaking, but I can be using this time to become a better speaker. It reminds me of a a concept that Ryan Holiday talks about called alive time versus dead time. And it's Mm kind of like this stoic concept of, um, when things aren't working out the way that you wanted them to, how can you take that time and not waste it, but turn it into something positive? And it sounds like that's what you've done with the speaking. It's really cool. Thanks, man. Yeah, it's something I've tried to do. And to use another example,
1: Stephen King constantly harps on on reading. He thinks all writers, uh, if they want to be good at, at any good at writing, they have to be reading. So he actually reads seventy five books a year. But something he talks a lot about is actually reading during dead time. so mm. right before you go into the the, the dentist office, uh, all those moments in life where normally you'd be twiddling your thumbs or scrolling through Instagram or checking your email, have a book with you so you can actually be improving yourself in, in, in reading reading a story and, and I think that there's there's the the book, uh, example or metaphor for anyone's craft. If you're a musician, you know, maybe you always carry a ukulele around with Mm. you. You know, if you're a, if you're a podcaster, maybe you always have the top podcast kind of queued up so you can plug them in, plug them in and sort of listen to other people do their craft. You know, um, it's just something I try to apply to my own life.
0: Yeah, It's a good practice. How many books do you read a year?
1: Dude, so this year, my goal is to read 52 and I'm currently on pace. So a book a week and how I've been able to do that is I will actually read two books at the same time. But my only rule is that they have one has to be fiction and one has to be nonfiction. Okay. Um, and that kind of allows me to like, once I start reading the nonfiction and let's say I get a fourth of the way through and I am feeling like I'm losing a little bit of creativity mm. and it's gotten a little dull then I can pick up, uh, you know, Kurt Vonnegut's Breakfast of Champions and really just dive into that, that beautiful work of fiction. And so it allows me to kind of go back and forth.
0: Do you follow Books of Titans at all on Instagram or Twitter? No, I don't. Is it, is it worth following? Definitely worth following. So the guy who runs it, his name is Eric Rostad. He was on the podcast as well. And he got this idea from reading Tim Ferriss's book, Tools of Titans, So all the guests in that book had recommended their favorite books or the books that they gifted the most. So he put together this huge list and he was like, all right, I'm going to read 52 books a year. And he's done this since like 2017. And he records a podcast, just a solo episode on pretty much every book that he reads. So like you can go to his podcast and scroll for hundreds of episodes and pick out just about any book you can think of and and get a good summary of it. What's the guy's name? His name's Eric Rostad. Okay, yeah. that's fascinating. Yeah, it's it's cool. And what I enjoyed in in talking with him was he pointed out that he sees these themes throughout books, like um, the theme of good versus evil. You know mm-hmm. that that shows up in so many stories. And and then you can s- pull these themes from books and see them out in life in the real world too. Love it. I'll have to I'll have to check that out
1: uh, over on Twitter.
0: For sure. All right, let's jump around a little bit. Can you tell me about your Uber driver who was retired from painting houses?
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah, I can. I could I could Jesus. That you uh threw me a curveball there. Let me gather myself real quick. <laughs> okay. So, I have to before I dive into this, I have to say I don't know if this is true or false. I can just speak to to what I experienced. But I get in this Uber one day at the time I was seeing this girl who was living out in Colorado. Um, that didn't work out. That's a story for a whole another episode or day. But anyways, we're uh, actually getting in the car and we're leaving from the movies. and this this Uber driver is uh, picks us up, and he has this really thick Boston accent. And he seems like an interesting cat. And he just starts talking and all of a sudden he starts telling me about Whitey Bulger, which if you don't know who who Whitey is or was, Whitey was an absolute legend in the world of gangsters. And he essentially ruled Boston. Uh, And uh, a big reason that the FBI was ultimately able to take down the five families was because Whitey was an informant for mm. the FBI, which created this whole other issue where the mafia and gangsters were really supposed to be loyal to their their kind, you know, loyal to crime. And 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 so anyways, why he was untouchable because he was an informant. And that's what allowed him to be ruthless, like in Boston. And this guy's telling me his story where he's he's like, you know, I was, I was, I was uh on the corner one day and and I and I pull up to the light and I shit you not, Whitey pulls up in his convertible. His, his, his mistress is in the passenger seat. I watch this guy get into the, his backseat. He pulls out a, uh, a, a, an automatic machine gun. And think about the nicest restaurant you've ever seen in your life. On this corner, there's this restaurant. Think of the nicest restaurant. It's two times as nice as that. He pulls out his machine gun and he guns down this motherfucker just right on the corner, just right on the corner. There's 200 witnesses. The FBI asked around about it. The police stopped asking ask around about it, and nobody will talk. And so he, he was like telling me these stories about Whitey Bulger, and I'm, and I'm, I'm in the backseat like, holy crap. And obviously as a dude, you know, in your 20s, you're eating this shit up because you <laughs> love crime, and like I love good fellas and I, I love all that stuff. And uh, then he starts telling me, you know his his brother ran with with Whitey Bulger, right? And his brother was kind of like in that world. And then he was saying how one time he had to uh, do some work for Whitey Bulger's mistress's home. You know, at the time, like on the south side. And then we get out of the car, and he tells me that he used to paint houses, which I didn't know until much later that paint painting houses wasn't was was code word for killing people, right? Because if you <laughs> shot someone in the head you know blood would go on the walls and you were painting painting houses and I learned that after watching the Irishman uh and you know the the main character De Niro and that paints houses and so it clicked it clicked for me as I'm watching the Irishman where I'm like holy shit did <laughs> did my Uber driver used to be like a hired assassin for Whitey Bulger and and I've been turning on this ever since and one day it's going to be a short story I'm just going to turn it into a piece of fiction
0: but it was wild man it was wild holy shit what a story what are the chances of you come across that dude in the wild but so what I really loved about this is you wrote this up in one of your emails and I liked how you tied the story into the point you were making about our fascination with the American mobster and mm-hmm. his refusal to conform to a specific set of rules and standards and norms and that type of thing and I think there's an itch deep down in all of us that we can't scratch when we're doing what society tells us Mm -hmm. and one of the things i admire about you is that you've kind of scratched that itch like one one thing i've heard you say before really struck a chord with me and you said the pain of tearing out that carpet was not nearly as painful as sitting at that desk doing a job that i hated can you tell me the story behind that quote
1: Sure. So right when I graduated from college uh, with a degree in marketing, I did what every single college grad does. I went and got a full time gig at an advertising agency uh, in my hometown, which is Evansville, Indiana. It's uh, in southern Indiana. It it sort of hugs uh, Kentucky, which a lot of people don't realize. And so I went and got this job at this agency and I wasn't doing anything in the realm of copy or writing or anything like that. I was really sort of an accounts person. And I absolutely hated the job. And I remember one day I got back from lunch and my gut was sort of hanging over my belt buckle. And, and I think that that's a really visceral moment, like in a man's life. And and I'm sure a woman's life too, but you kind of realize you put on a few when all of a sudden you can feel like the cold, sharp pinch of your belt buckle on your belly. And I was at this place where I hated my job. I'd gained some weight. Um, And I'm looking at this brick wall in front of me. And I just want to slam my head into this brick wall which which wasn't healthy and so I just got up and left I just left the office it was at 2 p.m. I want to say on like a Monday and uh, I text my boss and I just say hey I'm, I'm coming in tomorrow I'd love to have like a conversation sorry for leaving today and uh, we left on really good terms you know I put my two weeks in she just said you know you don't have to continue to work your two weeks just be on your way and so I bounced And uh, I really started pursuing this dream of being a writer. Unfortunately, you have to make an income as a writer. And I didn't know how to make an income as a writer at the time. So I bought myself time by working for a construction company uh, that was responsible for uh, tearing out carpet and laying down hardwood floor and new carpet. Uh, And I remember my first day on the job, I show up to work and my boss hands me these car keys to this sketchy looking van. He hands me a box cutter. He hands me a pair of leather gloves, duct tape, and a piece of paper. And on that piece of paper, there's a scribbled out address on there. And I'm thinking I'm going to paint houses. (laughs) But anyway, so I get in the car, I go to this apartment building, I get in there. And my job is now to tear out the carpet from these apartment buildings. And you know, you're, you're taking that knife and you're just sticking it deep into the carpet fibers and just tearing it down. And, you know, it's, again, it's an, it's another visceral sort of feeling because you feel the uh, the knife, like scratch the cement and it's really hard work and it's tough work, but I think it's work that's good for the soul. um, Or at least it was for me at the time. And so I I do this job from 7.00 AM till 3.00 PM. And I do it every day. And once I got off work, I would go and write and write and write. And I would just cold email the shit out of different brands, you know, and just say, Hey, I'd love to write a blog for you. Hey, I'd love to, I'd love to write something for you. And at the time, I had no idea what a copywriter was. Um, anyways, long, long story longer, I, I show up. Uh, one day I show up to my agency because my agency needs to do a remodel and their carpet fucking sucks. And we're the, we're the guys in town that rip out carpet. And I show up to this agency, uh, and my heart drops. Right, I'm I'm in my car, and I'm I'm I, I remember calling my dad and and being like, Dad, I I don't even want to go in here right now, you know. And and I can't remember what he said, but my my dad's definitely you know he coached me for a decade, and he definitely is one of those dads that thinks you should lean into to the hard shit. And so I walked in there, and for the next four or five hours, I'm tearing out carpet, and I see my colleagues who I'd worked with, you know, right beside me. Um, and they're not being judgmental. They're not being hateful, but there is this contrast that you have to experience where just, just months prior you were literally in here and you were working at a desk and you were uh, quote unquote living the American dream, right. You know, putting your college degree to work and now I'm in a cutoff and I'm in boots and I'm covered in dust and I'm sweating and I'm yeah, wielding a box cutter, like it's a pin, right. And, and uh, yeah, it was, it was, there were multiple moments that day where I, I wanted to cry, you know, but something that I remembered, you know, it was a really powerful shift for me was on the way home. I just started to think about it and I thought, you know, the pain of the embarrassment of ripping out that carpet, um, hurt a hell of a lot less than sitting in that office and doing a job I hated and not being able to pursue that dream of writing. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's been something that has stuck with me for a long time. And I think it's a reason I have such a I don't give a fuck mentality when it comes to writing because uh, worst case scenario people cancel me and I go back to ripping out carpet and I I continue to write the shit I want to write you know I've been to that 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 lowest of the low and I'm not necessarily afraid to to return back there you know
0: yeah that's that's a good place to come from I think so from from the time you quit that job at the agency and then you're ripping out carpet. And, you know, now you're a writer, you're making a living from doing what you love to do. What, what was that time period like until you got to the point where you're like, okay, I can actually make a living doing this?
1: Sure. So I, I, one thing I'll say is I got incredibly lucky in having just two amazing parents. Like my mom and dad are great. And uh, I, they let me move in with them free of charge. You know, we've already always had just an amazing relationship and that's something I recommend every young person do if the opportunity is there. Um, I had someone on Twitter tweet out today, you know, if you're older than me, please give me advice because I'm about to graduate in a week. You know, what's one thing you did right after graduation that really helped you? And one thing I said is don't fall into this, this pressure of having a nice pad, you know, and paying a bunch of money just to like keep up with the Joneses. Instead, just race to get 10K in the bank, you know, because mm-hmm. as soon as you get Ten thousand in the bank. Now all of a sudden, you have the freedom to kind of choose your career a little bit, or if you hate your career, you have the freedom to move on to a different career. Um, unfortunately, like when you're paying a bunch of money on rent and uh, nice clothes and all this shit right after college, you don't have that freedom. So my parents gave me that gift, and and really for about two years, I lived at home. And I just, you know, I'd tear out carpet during the day and then I'd bust my ass on copy. And by the second year, I was making enough money writing copy that I no longer had to tear out carpet. And I think like the first year I made 20K writing copy, you know, and then the second year I made uh, 45 to 50K writing copy. And then it just continued to keep going up from there. And uh, at the three year mark, I moved to Nashville and my life just kind of changed, you know.
0: That's awesome. That's that's an inspiring story for you know anybody who wants to do anything that's a bit creative or a bit different than the norm. You know, work for yourself, not slave for the man. So I I, I appreciate that you're able to share that. Ira Glass talks about this frustration that creators experience when they first start creating, whether it's you know writing or podcasting or painting, whatever it is. They have good enough taste to realize their own work isn't very good, Mm -hmm. uh, but they don't yet have the ability to um, create work that they're proud of. Did you go through a similar transition in your career? Absolutely. And dude, I have to applaud you because you're just
1: fucking teeing me up, man. Uh, So thank you. Um, (laughs) But yes, I went through this exact same transition. And I think it's important for every creative or really anyone doing anything that requires creativity to think about the reason you get into that vocation is because you have this incredible taste. Right. And that's, that's what I had with writing. I wasn't a very good writer, but I had great taste in writing. I'd read a bunch of books, you know, I'd, I'd read Hemingway. I'd read these writers where I was able to consciously understand this is really, really good writing. Right. And it's almost like the kid who has never cooked a grilled cheese sandwich but has eaten at Michelin star restaurants. Mm. And now he his parents are out of the house and he has full reign to cook his dinner and he goes to cook his dinner and it tastes like absolute shit. Right. <laughs> and he's frustrated and he says, Well, I'm never going to cook again. But he has to cook again because otherwise he'll starve and die. Right. So he's he's forced to get to that place. It's kind of the same thing for creatives, but if you just choose not to create, it's not like you're gonna starve to death and die. You know, so right. there's less, there's less pressure there, right? You you have more of a You're off the hook in a lot of ways, right? Um, So when I first started writing, that was something I was really frustrated with where I'd read something by Hemingway and then I'd turn around and and write and I'd think, man, this is just shit. And the truth is, is it it is shit. Mm. And so you have to give yourself, once you enter into a new vocation, you have to give yourself one, two, three years to really... Uh, allow your abilities to catch up with your tastes. Mm. So, um, and, and I would use like your good taste as reassurance that you're doing the right thing. So if yeah, your taste yeah. is at a 10 out of 10, your skill, when you start out might be out of two out of 10, uh, just give yourself time to get to three, four, five, six, and,
0: and you'll slowly, slowly work your way up. So what did putting in the reps look like for you? Was it, I'm gonna write a thousand words a day. I'm gonna publish three articles a week. What got you from that two to wherever you consider yourself to be now? Obviously closer to a ten.
1: Moxie. So Kurt Kurt Vonnegut is uh was just an astounding science fiction writer. And and one thing that he writes about uh in 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 his book on writing was that great writers compared to just good writers had something that the good writers didn't, and that was Moxie. And and it was this refusal to go unread. And that was something that I, I had from a, a very, you know, very, my very early 20s was while I, I kind of sucked at writing, I refused to go unread. You know, I was emailing 100, 200 people a week just to try to talk them into giving me a shot to write one of their blogs. Um, and with that, I was publishing everything I was writing, which I don't necessarily think is the right move. But I was getting on this schedule where I was writing a blog every single day. You know, I was sending out 10, 15, 20, 30 emails every single day. I was constantly writing and I wasn't just putting it in a notebook and shutting the notebook and putting it in a dusty drawer, right? I was actually hitting publish, you know, I was shipping it. And I think sometimes uh, when you continue to ship day in and day out, it almost creates this resistance where it's it becomes more painful not to do it than it does to do it. Um, Seinfeld has a really interesting uh, idea and theme around this where he calls it don't break the chain. But when he was first starting out writing jokes, he had this big calendar that he hung on his wall and he'd put a, a Sharpie X through, a, uh, through, through Monday when he wrote a joke on a Monday. Mm. And then on Tuesday when he'd write his next joke, he'd put another X. Then on Wednesday when he'd write a joke for that day, he'd put another X. And what he said is that as he added X's, right, to those days, he could see this chain, like this physical chain sort of forming on the calendar. And all of a sudden, when it came to Saturday and he has six X's and he has this beautiful chain and he feels like, hey, I want to go get fucked up with my friends and not sit down and do my my writing for the day. It becomes painful to break that chain because Mm -hmm. now you have to see this gap in the calendar. And I think that we all have to do that as creatives Uh, Almost play these games with ourselves to make it really painful not to do the work.
0: Man, Seinfeld is a master of his craft, and I I love that example. That's a good one, dude. He's he's on another level. (laughs) How has poetry affected your nonfiction writing, both reading it and writing it?
1: So my my entrance into poetry was was really interesting. So one day I started writing it, and I just didn't stop. I mean, I like now I'm sitting on. I want to say 2,000 to 3,000 poems that will eventually work their way into you know five a five-book collection. You know, wow. I'm, I'm three books in. And, and, and so it really felt like it was something I was put on earth to do, you know, or like this conversation that I had just been bottling up inside myself for so long. But um, where it's informed my copywriting is that I don't really view myself as writing copy for brands anymore. You know, I call it that because you can't tell a brand hey you know pay me two grand to write poetry for you right but when I'm sitting down to write a brand's landing page um, I'm really thinking about how can I write something that can be described as as prose you know versus Mm -hmm. copy Um, so I think that it has allowed me to take a completely different approach to writing where I'm trying to to write something that could go in a book rather than write something that's just simply there to, to convert sales, you know, and, and it's allowed me to do some, you know, some really great work. Like here, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, So I got hired. So I got hired, I got hired by this brand called last crumb recently. It's a, uh, here's, here's kind of an image of it. Um, but it's a, it's a cookie brand and each cookie goes for $15, like each cookie is 15 bucks. And so they hired me and they're like, you know, we don't have much of a, a budget, but we'll give you full creative control. You can just fucking run. And I said, okay. And so I started naming all the cookies. So I named like 12 cookies and like this one's called Netflix and crunch. And it's a cinnamon toast crunch cookie. Uh, the chocolate chip cookie is called, uh, the better than sex cookie. The um, chocolate lava cake cookie, um, the floor is lava cookie. So sort of like a hat tip to childhood. Yeah. Um, and uh, the the peanut butter cookie is called the, the Monroe because a lot of people don't realize it, but there's a secret society of like peanut butter lovers and like Bill Clinton is in it, <laughs> and Marilyn Monroe is in it. So it's like the Monroe. And um, most people, when they think of like a description for a product, they're thinking, okay, I'm going to write, uh you know for this cinnamon toast crunch uh they might write the cinnamon is decadent and it will light your taste buds up and it's just like a very standard description but for this what i wrote and this is again because of like my background and in poetry and prose but this is the description i wrote uh we've all netflix on pause tiptoeing into the kitchen and rifling through the cabinets until we stumble upon a box of cinnamon toast crunch glowing like a dream come true. We pour a keeping bowl, uh, swing open the fridge into our horror spy, not a drop of milk anywhere in sight. We're in denial. We search in desperation, tears in our eyes. Cinnamon Toast Crunch hits differently without milk. That's why we've made a Cinnamon Toast Crunch cookie with a vanilla milk swirl included. You're welcome. So people are going to pick this up and they're going to read it and now it like adds to the experience of like eating the cookie, right? Um, and so that's where I think like the poetry helps is, I'm not viewing this shit as a copywriter. I'm viewing it as like um, if I'm pretending to be Hemingway and someone were asking me to write advertising and told me to have as much fun as possible, what are you going to write? And, mm.
0: and that I think is kind of what comes out. That's really cool. I like how both in, in that copy that you just read us, that prose, and in a lot of your writing, you pull out an experience that people can identify with. Like Everybody knows the feeling of that late night trip to the kitchen when you've got the pancakes, but no syrup or the cookies, but no milk or whatever. And you're like, fuck, I just want this thing. (laughs) And, and you are able to pull that out. And I I think people identify with that and that's, that's what makes writing really good. And you did this exact thing in my favorite piece of yours that you've written titled shaking hands with your ex's boyfriend. Mm -hmm. And man, I loved this piece because you, you, Again, distilled this common experience into words. You clearly communicated the feeling of a breakup and the jealousy over your ex girlfriend's new boyfriend, even if he doesn't exist yet. Mm -hmm. And I I imagine a lot of other people like this one too, but I'm wondering what it felt like to expose this raw part of yourself to the world. Painful. You know,
1: I think it, it always feels painful to expose that part. And I think that it's both a selfless and a selfish act, right? Where sometimes I think when the reason I write about stuff that's a little bit deeper and, and more painful like this is because I'm feeling a little bit alone in my own pain and selfishly, I want, you know, uh, to blast it out into the world and see if anyone out there is kind of shooting up bat signals like, yo, I, I fucking hear you, dude, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm here, right? And then I think the selfless part of it is, you know, there's a part of me that hopes like by sharing that story, there's people out there that can, can resonate with it, you know, but like that example was, I, you know, fell head over heels for this woman in uh, Denver, Colorado, so much so that, you know, we spent like an entire year keeping the relationship afloat on big jet planes and, and late night phone calls. That's, that's what it was. And so we'd see each other every couple of weeks. And, you know, I think in a lot of ways I thought, you know, she was the one, you know, the person I was going to marry. And uh, all of a sudden, someone started coughing in China, right? (laughs) And uh, in a matter of like two to three weeks, that turned into this pandemic, you know, and all of a sudden, she and I couldn't fly anymore. And we were trying to continue to make it all work from, a thousand miles apart and not being able to see each other in person. And, mm-hmm. you know, people will tell you, you know, if you all were meant to be, you guys would have made it work and uh, you know, five months, six months apart, that's no problem. And I, I just call horseshit on that because I don't I don't know. I think even healthy marriages would fall apart if they had to spend that much time apart. But um it just derailed me. You know, I mean it just killed me and and we ended uh on the on the fourth of July and um i immediately started just writing a book you know called after her which will be out in a month that i think will really i hope help a lot of people through breakups but the piece you're referring to was something i think all men deal with and that's when once you end with you know someone you you deeply love it's very very natural to start creating in your mind who her next lover is going to be and that lover is always going to be someone that's better than you. And the lover for me was someone who had a full head of hair and wasn't starting to bald at 28. It was someone who um, maybe had a sharper jawline that he didn't feel like he had to cover up with a beard. You know, it was someone with a bigger dick, you know, it was, it was all these things. And um, where I tried to kind of close up the piece and like this beautiful and what I hoped uh, like peaceful way is you eventually have to get to this place where you think about this man and you are comfortable with walking into a room and sitting across from this man and learning to see him as a human <laughs> and hopefully learning to respect him and hopefully learning to laugh with him and hopefully learning to get to this place where you can stand up from your seat, walk across the room, stick out your hand, shake hands with him, and then exit stage left because it's now his show, you know it's mm. now him and her. And uh that was that piece. And it was painful, but I hope for like a lot of readers it was able to kind of uh bring some peace to, you know, this this beautiful but very challenging part of our lives, and that's falling in and out of love.
0: What kind of feedback did you get from that piece? <laughs>
1: Great feedback. Yeah, I think everyone who read it, um, you know, I had multiple people. I had a woman who had been a longtime reader who's married and uh has kids and is in a very happy marriage. She, she had told me like in her email, but she even said, you know, thank you for this. Um, I've had, I have a love like this in a past life, you know, that I thought I was going to marry. And I, I just want you to know that you can have both in a lot of ways where you can have that pain of, of losing that person, but you can also have this beauty of realizing like my life worked out in a really cool way, you know? And, and, and so there were multiple pieces like that where, I had a, a, a gal in India, you know, write me and say, she she's like in marketing, but she just wrote me and said, I just, I just uh, ended, you know, with someone that meant this, this to me. So it felt good.
0: You know, that's one of the cool things about writing online is that you put yourself out there and you share these profound ideas and you connect with people from across the country and across the world. and. It's, it's super rewarding. It's, it's a really nice feeling. Yeah, man, it is. And I think it's, it's something you can only do, like, you know, you
1: can do it with song and you can do it with art, but I think like maybe podcasts, I think writing, whether it's a little bit more long form, I think mm-hmm. it makes it a little bit easier to connect with people uh, on that, that deeper level sometimes.
0: For sure. Can you tell me about a guy named Bill? Using your copywriting course to sell his nine-year-old couch. <laughs>
1: Bill Bill is an absolute G. He he emailed me out of the blue, and just said, "You know, i I used your I used your course to write a Craigslist ad, and before um, I wasn't getting any hits on it, but then I rewrote the title and I rewrote the 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 caption on it and I ended up selling it for like four or five times my original asking <laughs> my a- asking price. And uh I look at this 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 couch and, and in his, his I I wish I had the I wish I had the the ad in front of me, but he I've got he, it right here. You got it. Yeah. How long how long was that ad?
0: It wasn't that long. Actually, hang on, let me pull it up here. Yeah. Here we go. It's like I don't know four or five paragraphs
1: four or five paragraphs yeah I won't I won't make you you read it but basically Bill talks about getting married and his wife hating the couch and not respecting like how beautiful it is <laughs> and uh, her essentially making him sell it. And what's hilarious is if you look at the picture of the couch, the couch is just heinous. I mean, like I, <laughs> I even wrote this in the email when I shouted him out. I was like, Bill, like I have to side with your wife. The couch is fucking ugly. Um, <laughs> but like his copy told this amazing story and it found the right person. And someone who thought the couch was beautiful decided to buy it for four times like his original asking price before he wrote the copy, you know, after reading my guide. So
0: yeah, that was a fun and and cool story. Yeah, I love that one. That made me smile. I mean, it seems like the perfect example of why the average person should study copywriting. Where else does copywriting come into play where we might not expect it? I would
1: say, for if you're a young man, you know, in your twenties or thirties, I think it can be really effective. You know, in 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 getting landing a date with a with a gal, right? I think that that it can be really effective there. You know, one one example I've used in my own life. This house I'm in now, when I moved from Chicago to Nashville, I fell in love with this home. And the thing about the Nashville market is everything, uh, even now, gets like it'll be listed at three hundred thousand, and then it will be sold at four hundred thousand. I mean, it's just crazy. And I had looked at three different homes, and all of them had gone for fifty to sixty thousand dollars above asking price, mm-hmm. um, and. Multiple offers, right? And so I get to this home and I walk in and I'm like, "Oh my god! Like this is uh, this is exactly the home I want." And of course, you know, it had four offers, and I I just was like, "Okay, I'm I'm gonna write the homeowner a letter." And so I wrote him a letter and essentially just talked about, you know, I knew that the house was uh, renovated and that it used to be it was built in the 1950s, and I just said, "I know the type of." craftsmanship and the type of work and thought that goes into creating something like this. You know, I, I I try to do it every day like with my writing and I just want you to know that if I can own this home like I will always try to respect the amount of craftsmanship you've put into this. And mm-hmm. um I ended up being like not the highest off the highest offer but being the person he went with, um which wow. was really cool. So I would say that um, I don't like to say that copywriting can be used to persuade people, but I think it can be used to effectively communicate those things in your chest and the things on your mind that you haven't previously been able to communicate um, well. So that's why I think everyone should use it. I think it in a way can not copywriting, but writing. I think good writing can make the world a more empathetic place. I
0: love that. It's perfect. Cole, I like to give my guests the opportunity to ask me questions. Is there anything that comes to mind you'd like to ask me?
1: If you weren't doing what you're doing now, what would you be doing? So uh, another way I would phrase that, and hopefully by that question, you understand why I don't run a podcast, but uh, what would be the vocation you would do if you weren't currently doing your current vocation?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough to say. I I think I would be writing. Um I wouldn't I wouldn't be doing copywriting, but I think I would be writing an article every week or three or four articles a month and I would be trying to share stories and teach lessons through those stories that could help people and and connect with people. Um I do that already. I don't do it as as much as I'd like to and I don't make any money doing it, which is why You know, I have a job, but Mm -hmm. uh, that's what I enjoy doing. I like I like reading, and I like taking the ideas that are in my head and putting them out on the paper, and then seeing which of those ideas resonate with people. So that's that's what I would be doing.
1: I dig it. What is your most popular, unpopular opinion? So something that you're like, I feel very strongly about this, but it's I'm in the minority of of this area of thought so maybe uh like i maybe you have like this deep love of wasabi when you go to sushi restaurants like what's what's something that not a lot of people love that you really that you really really feel strongly about that you do love
0: yeah i i I do love wasabi but that's that's not gonna be my answer yeah thank Um, god um so This, I think, is an unpopular opinion, but it's becoming more popular, and and it's the idea that I don't think people should watch the news. I think the news has almost no value, and I think it actually has negative value, because Mm -hmm. it's designed to draw you in and fire you up and keep your eyes on the screen. It's really not designed to inform you. You know, If Mm -hmm. you watch whatever news network, whether it's CNN or Fox or NBC or ABC, whatever it is, MSNBC they all have a very specific angle and none of them are giving you the, the balanced view of the events that are taking place out in the world. They're trying to sell you something basically. Um, And by getting your information in that manner, you're not becoming more educated. You're not becoming more intelligent. You're not becoming better informed. You're becoming angry and biased and bitter. And I think uh, it's just a very unhealthy way to spend your time. And I think too many people, especially Americans, spend too much time watching the news. Um, and I think we'd all be a lot better off if if nobody was doing that.
1: I dig it. Uh, last last question. so uh, when you think about like uh, in the olden days when they would build uh, doorways or maybe large kind of uh, openings to to like buildings they would have something called the keystone right mm. that would essentially hold all the other stones in place and kind of function as the 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 strong point um and in I forget where I read it but I've I've uh you know what I think it was called uh it's like about the habit loop but it's about like forming new habits and stuff but it was really interesting but one thing they talked about was called the keystone habit you know it's mm. essentially the one thing you do in your life that has like massive impact on maybe your happiness, your overall effectiveness. And I think that that's something I'll ask you is like, what is sort of the keystone decision you make each day or the keystone activity or practice or, you know, uh, philosophy that you feel like is having the biggest impact, uh, positive impact on your life?
0: Yeah. I think that idea comes from James Clear, the idea of the keystone habits Yeah, um, yeah. and his book, Atomic Habits, is just fantastic. But for me, I mean, it's it's nothing earth-shattering. It's, it's exercise. Um, I find that when I exercise five or six times a week, I'm happier, I sleep better, I think more clearly, I'm less anxious, I'm a nicer person to be around, my body looks better. Um, there's there's really no downside to exercise. There's only upside. And I've never uh, started a workout and got to the end of it and said well shit I really wish I didn't do that you know but there are plenty of other things like I've started plenty of Netflix shows where I'm like what the fuck am I doing watching this right right. you know so yeah for me exercise is that keystone habit and I notice that I'm not as happy I'm not as effective I'm not as pleasant to be around when I'm not exercising so yeah that's that's the thing that I come back to almost every day Man, I'm
1: right there with you. It's something I, I try to do every single day. And I sort of viewed it um, in this metaphor of like, if, you, if you're feeling really cluttered and anxious and upset, and maybe uh, dirty is not the right word, but um, like not like yourself. Uh, it's, it's almost like walking into a room, and there's moving boxes everywhere, and it's cluttered, and there's, uh, it's really super dirty. To like clear it out, you have to do physical work to like Mm. move the boxes, sweep, mop, Um, and that's what exercise has always been for me. Uh, Like you, where I might start a day and feel very, 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 very anxious, and for whatever reason, that physical element of getting in the gym, moving weights, doing deadlifts, running on the treadmill, it almost like physically moves the mental clutter that's in my mind, Um, and it's it's been life changing
0: for me too. Yeah, totally agree with that. Um, I, I I've said a bunch of times that exercise is to my mind what like foam rolling is to my muscles. <laughs> right when I when I've got that shit in there, when my muscles hurt, I need to get on that foam roller and roll it out, even though it hurts like a bitch. Yeah, yeah, and and exercise a lot of times is like not super pleasant while you're doing it, but it just sucks all the shit right out of your mind. It's great,
1: dude. Right there with you, man. And sometimes I wonder too, like if you. Cut the music and the the podcast during exercise, which I'm notorious for listening to both of those while I work out. But it's kind of the only time in your day where you're forced to just sit um, and move with your own thoughts, you mm-hmm. know. And I
0: think that that's part of the meditation. Yeah, for sure. So my my last guest on the show, Danny Miranda, has been doing this thing where he meditates 60 minutes a day in the morning. He'll get out of bed, sit in the chair, put his feet up and just sit there with no distractions. He's not doing anything. He's not following his breath or doing any like weird meditation type shit, but he's just letting his mind like be in silence and letting it run and letting the thoughts unwind. And I, I think exercise is very, it has a very similar purpose, mm-hmm. but I want to try that because I want to see what the outcome is. Yeah, man. An hour is, uh,
1: that is crazy. That's a long, that's a long time. The most I hear about people doing is maybe 20 minutes, Yeah,
0: um, but that's
1: ambitious. That's ambitious.
0: An hour is daunting. I don't, I don't know if I could sit with myself for an hour. No, no. (laughs) All right, cool. I'd love to finish our conversation by asking you some rapid fire questions. Sound good? Yeah. Cool. All right, you've you've spoken to this a little bit already, but uh, I'm curious what advice you would give to a smart-driven college student about to graduate.
1: Yeah, so I spoke I spoke to it earlier, but um, so I'll, I'll give different advice. Uh, my advice would be do cool shit. Don't think about doing cool shit. Don't talk about doing cool shit. Just go out and do cool shit. Um, even now in my late 20s, I have really remarkable friends who. Uh, I, you know, you, you meet up and you hear them talk about the same things each year and it's not shitting on them. It's just like a human condition. You know, Mm. I've, I've talked about for the past year of doing an art wall on this empty wall out in my family room. And I just haven't done it right. Don't allow yourself to become that person in your own life when it comes to your ambitions. And, uh, what I would just tell people is if like, you have the idea of like shooting a short film, you know, hire a shit videographer for 500 bucks and and shoot the shoot the short film you know if you um want to pitch a client on doing this cool video campaign or this cool sort of guerrilla marketing strategy instead of pitching them just go do it without their permission and then send them an invoice afterwards and see what they do you know just do really cool stuff because i think that uh that there's always gonna be room in our world for that type of person who has the moxie the initiative to just get out there and 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 do stuff that other people are too scared to do and, and are unwilling to do.
0: Love that. What's a favorite mental model you use in your life?
1: Okay. So one mental model that I have is uh it's it's called on on tilt. So poker players when they are uh when when they get a bad hand right or when they have well really it's like when they have a bad hand but let's say they have a bad hand then another bad hand and then another bad hand after that they sort of lose their mojo in a lot of ways and two things happen when you lose your mojo you either start acting recklessly right to make up for the money you've lost Mm -hmm. or you start playing overly conservative and all of a sudden uh you're getting your ass beat because you're not uh not playing like you normally should be playing. Uh in poker, this is called on tilt. It means like you are uh volatile, right? Mm. I really struggle with this today, like both in my career and in my personal life, because I am a very emotional person. But uh the difference now versus when I was 25 was that I'm much, much better at recognizing when I am on tilt. Um and so what poker players will do when they get on tilt, the good ones, uh, they'll they're super aware of it. They'll get up from the table, and there's some poker players that'll go out in the parking lot and just start running wind sprints, you know, <laughs> to get themselves out of it. Um, and so, something that I really try to do is when I notice myself getting on tilt. Like uh, several weeks ago, I was getting on the uh, I was an hour out from getting on the Marie Forleo podcast, which was to date, you know, probably the biggest um, podcast that I had that I had been on. And I was psyching myself out a little bit and all of a sudden my nine month old pit bull walked in and she threw up this, this puddle of green vial on the floor. And in this green vial, there was, uh, this coiled up alien looking life form just like sitting there. And I was like, and and I literally wanted to puke. And so I grabbed a, a tissue and I took this coil outside in the sun <laughs> and the coil starts like unraveling and, um, it like starts kind of pulsing its tail in the, a weird way and it's a roundworm. So oh. google roundworm sometime or don't, you know, but they're the <laughs> most disgusting creatures you'll ever see in, in your life. They're they're a parasite that that are super common in dogs. But if you see it as a human, you just it looks like something out of Alien versus Predator. And naturally like my mind, my monkey mind just starts googling, you know, roundworms and I go on this rabbit hole and I realize, okay, dogs can die from roundworms. So I'm worried about her roundworms can be passed off to humans. So I'm worried about myself. I'm traveling with some people. So I'm worried about them. And I'm 45 minutes out from the podcast and I am nowhere fit to be interviewed. You know, like I'm, I'm just fucked up. And so, uh, I call my father and my father, uh, coached me in basketball for a decade. And he's really good at, uh, within three to five minutes, just leveling me out. So I call my dad, he levels me out. I throw on um, "City of Angels" by Miguel on repeat, and I go for a three-mile run. Uh, I was in Florida at the time, just sweating my ass off. Get back. We're about thirty. We're about maybe maybe twenty minutes out. Get in the shower, take a cold shower. Get out. Take two shots of whiskey. Sit down. <laughs> Interview time. You know, I'm ready. Like I'm in the right mindset and. A lot of times, I think that uh, when we're on tilt, we don't recognize it, so we try to power through it, mm. and then we look like fucking idiots on the podcast, or we send a super angry email to uh, someone who didn't really deserve it, or we tell someone on Instagram to fuck off, like I did today. You know, like there's there's things like that that happen where other people suffer because we can't put a finger on when we're we're not in the right mindset so that's something i just am constantly trying to monitor like my my mental and emotional state and
0: that's a really good one i think more people need to work on that all right last one here this is one that i borrowed from patrick o'shaughnessy what is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you
1: so my i would say i don't know if it was the kindest thing that anyone has ever done for me but Uh, well actually it 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 was I I got I mentioned this earlier I got really lucky with my parents they they um I I hit the lottery in a lot of ways um and so I went to a high school where there was you know about 50 percent of the school was black about 20 percent about 25 percent of the school was white and then the remaining 25 percent were people like me, where it was a mix of races. Right. And so from a young age, I, I kind of existed in this, this gray space, like in between these two worlds where I would go to school and, you know, 60 to 70% of the kids were on free or reduced lunch. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I'd go home and my parents both had college degrees and they were both very driven and they made good money and they were able to really support me and my brothers and, you know, they were just amazing, but it wasn't something like every kid could experience. And I remember, you know, like I grew up playing basketball and at my school, there was maybe four or five white kids on the team and the rest of the kids were black. And, um, I remember all through middle school and really early into high school, I would meet up with this kid named Maurice, uh, at my middle school um, late in the evenings and he would just kick the shit out of me on the basketball court. I mean, he was, he was so good. He was a, he ended up being division one talent as a running back, but gotten into, tr- into some trouble. I mm. mean, um, he was that kind of athlete and he would just kick the shit out of me every single day when we'd go out there and play. Uh, and then finally one day, like at, at the end of the summer, you know, I remember like we hugged because it was like the first time I'd beat, beat him in one one on one, you know? And um that that's just more so to give you like the contrast of like these worlds I occupied. So there were a lot of times like throughout my life where I like, especially early on where I felt thankful for being able to have this life that I did nothing like in a past life to deserve mm. being thankful for that. But at the same time being very, very guilty, you know, for it too, because I grew up with kids who didn't have that type of lifestyle, you know? And, um, I remember one of my teammates who I played with. Um, I hadn't seen him for four years after high school. One of the most talented basketball players I'd ever played with. We met up at an open gym. It had been four years. We're hugging, you know, we're we're catching up, we're hooping. And he shows me a picture of his his son, who uh, he had recently had. And, you know, this kid had always gotten into trouble. And he um, he was like, you know, I'm I want to be better for him. I want to do some do something better for him and four months later I heard he had was in the wrong place at the wrong time and was shot in the head you know and um and because I had great parents I lived on a side of town where I could go to bed at night and not worry about getting shot you know Mm -hmm. and so I'd say the nicest thing anyone has ever done for me is um my parents working their ass off to allow me to not have to worry about shit. A lot of these other kids have had to worry about, you know, potentially dying because they're in the wrong place at the wrong time, not knowing how they're going to pay for lunch. Uh, you know, not knowing if they're going to get the division one scholarship because they can't stay out of trouble. And Mm. so that's something I'm incredibly thankful for. And, uh, by far, you know, the nicest thing anyone's done for me is just, you know,
0: my parents. There's really no bigger advantage than having good parents. Nope. Cole, thank you so much for coming on, man. This was a lot of fun. Where can people find you if they want to continue the conversation, read your writing, any of that? Yeah, man. So I'm on, uh,
1: I'm on Instagram uh, at Cole underscore Schaefer. Uh, I'm on Twitter, just at honeycopy. Uh, and then you can definitely find me just uh, over on my website, HoneyCopy.com. There's plenty of tabs there, but the the best place to connect is just click the newsletters in the far right hand corner and pick one that tickles your fancy. And I'll be I'll be in touch at some point within the next week. So
0: awesome! I'll link to all that stuff and I uh, got to give your your uh, newsletter high recommendation. I enjoy it a lot. Thanks, so. man. Thank you. Yeah,
1: this was a pleasure. Thanks for being so fucking prepared, man. I mean, you you were giving me
0: giving me me softballs. Well, yeah, this it it was a lot of fun. So thank you very much, man. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for spending your time listening to the show. If you have any questions, comments or further topics for discussion, shoot me a message on Twitter at Joseph C. Wells. I'd love to hear from you. And make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter, The Lake Street Journal, at josephcwells.com. Until next time, take care and thanks for listening.